Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. Today we are finishing up our series on Nehemiah. Uh, next week we begin a new series uh, for the summer on the Old Testament character Joseph. And we're going to explore the sovereignty of God over suffering and over evil. This week, though, uh, we're in Nehemiah chapter 9. So I want to bring us up to speed. God called a man named Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the Persian king, uh, to rebuild the walls and the gates around the city of Jerusalem. He prayed and wept, and then with permission from the king, he left the city of Susa, he went to Jerusalem, he made a plan, he recruited and trained the Israelites uh, who were living there on how to rebuild the walls. And in 52 days, the walls around Jerusalem, which had laid in ruins for 142 years, uh, were finally rebuilt. Last week in chapter 8, we saw around 50,000 people who were moving back into the city just show up like a flash mob. Um, and one of the first things they did was they had a worship service um, where Ezra stood in front of them and read through the first five books of the Bible. He read and preached for six hours straight for seven days in a row. And as these 50,000 people were hearing the word of God preached, uh, their hearts began to soften and began to hunger for God's word in a way that they had never done before. They began to realize really the truth of the gospel, that there is a chasm, a great chasm between an all-holy, all-loving God and sinful us. And they began to realize their need for a savior. Today's scripture takes place a few days later. Here's verse 1 again. It says this. On October 31st, the people assembled again, and this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. So all these people show up a few days later, uh, this time having not eaten, and they're dressed in like scratchy, uncomfortable material like you would see uh, on a potato sack. And they're covered in ashes. Maybe they're even covered in clods of dirt. Some churches uh, you have to dress up to go to. Uh, the Presbyterian church that I went to growing up, uh, it was suits and ties and nice dresses. Here at Life Church, we encourage you to come as you are, right? You've heard that phrase if you've been attending here for any period of time. Uh, but these folks in our scripture today probably looked like a bunch of homeless people. But it wasn't because they were poor uh, that they came like this. Their outward appearance was a reflection of the state of their hearts. Their sin had grieved the heart of God. And so they humbled themselves before the Lord and they began to confess their sin. They had just heard God's word preached 
six hours straight for seven days in a row. And now their eyes were opened. For the first time, they began to see uh, that their sin was the problem and that they needed to confess their sin before the Lord. Verses 2 and 3 in our scripture today say this. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. So we don't often think about the sins of our parents or the sins of our grandparents or the sins of our ancestors. Certainly not common to confess the sins of our parents or our grandparents. Sometimes we've lived with our family so long we don't even see their sin anymore. We may have had pretty good parents, right, who've tried their best to love us, tried to show us uh, the love of God. Or maybe, maybe there have been some pretty terrible sins in our family. We know about them, but like, we don't want to acknowledge them. We don't want to deal with them. Or maybe you just don't want to dishonor your parents, right? Which, of course, is biblical. But not acknowledging or dealing with the sins of your family can cause you to either overlook your sin, deny it, or you just don't want to acknowledge it or deal with it. Maybe you think, um, that's not me, that's my family. Or you think, that's in the past, I don't need to bring that up again. But the truth is, if we don't acknowledge the sin of our parents, uh, if we don't take those sins before the Lord, confess them, repent of them, then it is quite possible we may end up repeating them. Have you ever seen how alcoholism can run through a family? Or adultery? Or being terrible with money? Like, have you ever met people, it doesn't matter how much money they get, they can't seem to hold on to it? Or how about abuse? I think we've all seen how, how that can pass from generation to generation. The abusee becomes the abuser. Actually, all kinds of sins can pass from parents to their children, from generation to generation, right? Pride, materialism, anger, judgmentalism. Greed, sexual sin, gluttony, worry, unbelief, and more. We see this in Scripture. Right? Here's an example. Abraham's considered the father of the faith. Right? He had an amazing relationship with God. He was filled with all kinds of faith. But he had sins, he had flaws, just like the rest of us. 
One time he used deception to protect himself before a king. He asked his wife Sarah to lie, saying that she wasn't his wife, but was his sister. What's fascinating is that Abraham's son Isaac did the very same thing. And then we know that his son, Isaac's son, Jacob, overall had a problem with being deceptive. It was a pattern of sin that passed from generation to generation. Now, I'm not saying that we should blame our parents or that we should blame previous generations for our own bad choices. We do have to take responsibility for our own actions. But being able to recognize these family patterns of sin um, can explain why we battle certain sins more than others and can help us get free. Um, there's a saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Meaning we tend to follow in our parents' footsteps. So if your father tended to avoid conflict, um, you might discover that you are conflict avoidant. Or if your mother was proud and self-righteous, uh, you might discover that in yourself. If you had a parent who had an unhealthy interest in the occult or spirits or witchcraft, you might too. So I remember growing up in the 70s and 80s, uh, and my mom was all into astrology. Astrology, right? She had that book, uh, Love Signs by Linda Goodman. Anybody know that book? It's like real thick. It has all this stuff about horoscopes. And every day she would read her horoscope in the paper, and then she would read me mine. And as a teenager, uh, I too developed an unhealthy fascination with the occult. I'm preaching on confession, I'm just going to confess, okay? So I started out by checking books out of the library, first on astrology, then self-hypnotism. Uh, then I was reading about witchcraft. Then I was reading about Satanism. Um, my sister will tell you to this day that she could see something demonic on me at that time. Not possession, but definitely oppression. Um, after I gave my life to Christ, I had to go through some serious, deep ministry and pray and confess and repent of all this stuff, right? And it, and it wasn't just praying and confessing and repenting over my involvement in this stuff. It was praying and confessing my mother's involvement in this stuff as well. So when we confess the sins of our parents and previous generations, uh, we are acknowledging that that part of who we are um, that, has been, that, that has been shaped by the family we've been raised in, right? And by confessing those sins... Um, we're taking personal responsibility for the sins of our family. We're acknowledging that those patterns and habits of sinful thoughts and behaviors 
um, that may have been passed down to us, we, we want to break that, right? We break that through the power of confession. We are finally, in some cases, breaking that chain. We often tend to do the opposite, though. Um, people may see the sins of their family, but instead of confessing and repenting of them, um, they use that as an excuse for their own sin. Right? Maybe your dad used to be angry with you, and now you, you tend to be an angry person. Or maybe your mom was a, was a shopaholic or a gossip, right? And now you are the same. And you're thinking, it's not my fault, I got it from her, or I got it from him. And on and on it goes. Okay? And rather than confessing and repenting of personal and family sin, we can sometimes just ignore it or just use it as an excuse for our own behaviors, right? But these Israelites that we read about today in Nehemiah 9, they aren't doing that. They are actually confessing their sin individually and corporately and even generationally confessing the sin of the past. Okay, verse four says this. The Levites... Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani stood on the stairway of the Levites and cried out to the Lord their God with loud voices. Loud voices. They cried out with loud voices. So, so this confession, it's a public confession. Like it says they are crying out to the Lord with loud voices. It is a public confession for everyone to hear. I want to talk a bit about confession. Um, the power of confession and what the Bible has to say about confession. So I want to start by looking at a different Old Testament passage, which Amanda read, but I want to read it again. Psalm 32 Verses 1 through 5, which is a psalm of David. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. And I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. In that last verse, the psalmist says, I stopped trying to hide my guilt. And then he says, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. So confession is a foundational spiritual practice. Right? It's a spiritual discipline. 
But it's not just one discipline to choose among many, right? Like I can pray, I can read my Bible, I can worship, I can be silent, uh, I can meditate on God's word, or I can confess my sin. It's not just one discipline to choose from among many. Confession is actually the way in. It is the doorway into the presence of God. It is primary. So look again at verses 3 and 4. David says this. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. So David's essentially saying, uh, there's something wrong, God. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to enter into your presence, but I can't. Like, what's wrong? And then verse 5 says, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Everything in David's life was pointless until he dealt with his guilt and his sin. Why is confession so significant? So the pastor, Francis Chan, uh, once told a story about holding a prayer meeting with another pastor. The two of them invited people to come up for prayer. They invited people to come forward who were struggling with sin and to confess and receive prayer. Anyone struggling with alcoholism, drugs, pornography, living a double life, lying, cheating, stealing, Whatever. They're all invited to come forward and to confess. They said they'd, they'd pray for anyone who wanted to be prayed for, right? And the line ended up being out the door. People were confessing with very brutal honesty. There were leaders who were coming up. There were pastors who were coming up. There were elders who were coming up. Some confessed that they were living hypocritically, right? They weren't the people that others thought they were. They can, some of them confessed that they hated their spouses. Some of them confessed that they were bitter towards their children. Many ad uh, admitted that they struggled with some kind of addiction. How many of us come to church every week but we never deal with our real issues. Like David in that psalm, we just remain silent. Okay? I mean, we come to church, we smile, we're pleasant, we worship, but no one really knows what we're going through. No one really knows the condition of our heart. If that's what we're doing, then what's the point? If we're not getting real, like, 
let's just shut it down. Let's just pack it up and let's just go home. What is the point of like doing some religious things if we're not going to deal with the real issues in our life? So imagine you're having guests over to your house. You work hard to get the place ready for their arrival, right? You pick up, you dust, you vacuum, maybe even put out some nice drinks and snacks. But right in the middle of the living room is a big pile of dog poop. Okay? And you decide you're just going to ignore it. Okay? You clean all around it, but you just leave it there. Okay? That happens in churches all the time. Every Sunday, in churches all around the world, many Christians are just cleaning and dusting around their mess, listening to sermons learning some theological insights, right? Worshiping through singing, worshiping through giving. But all the while, there is a big pile of manure in their lives. If that is the case, then what is the point? Church ought to be the place where we can be real, right? Where we can receive help, where we can receive healing. For some of you who are listening to me right now, the Holy Spirit is bringing some things to your mind that you need to confess. Do not neglect that. The Holy Spirit is saying, if you don't deal with this, it will destroy you. Some of you may be tempted to think that this message is not for you. Maybe you don't feel like you're guilty of anything big or anything terrible. But small sins can actually be more dangerous. Right? More people have died from tiny viruses than mountain lions or bears. Small sins, right, the ones we don't notice or the ones we think that we can manage, um, can be the most deadly. So C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, uh, Screw Tape Letters. If you've not read that, I highly recommend it. One of my favorites, Screw Tape Letters. Okay, it's fiction, but there's a lot to be learned in this book. So it's about a senior demon named Screw Tape um, who's giving advice to a junior demon, Wormwood on how to tempt people, like how to, how to lead them away from God. In one of the chapters, Screwtape advises Wormwood to not just tempt people with big sins, right, but to understand and to utilize the power of little sins. And here's what, here's what Screwtape says. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And the enemy is, is God. That's, that's what he's talking there. 
It does not matter how small the sins are provided. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual, is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So we all need to beware of small sins. We all have piles of this stuff sitting in our hearts, and God wants to deal with them. You might tell me, um, well, I think you, you would be upset, most of you, if I brought a big pile of steaming manure and I put it right here on the stage, right? Some of you might say, like, this is the house of God. You're defiling it. But the Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you think God would be more offended by manure in this sanctuary or unconfessed sin in our hearts? We all have sin in our hearts, and often we deal with that sin by just trying to cover it. Right? Or maybe, maybe we shift blame. It's not my fault. Or we rationalize it. It's not that bad. Or we medicate. Or we try to distract ourselves. Or we try to cover it with our good qualities, with our achievements. But none of that works. So what does? Well, we see from both the passage in Nehemiah today, in chapter 9, and the psalm, Psalm 32, um, that the answer is confession. So how do we do that? How do we confess our sin? First, we start by being ruthlessly honest. Don't deceive yourself anymore. Don't deceive others. Ask God to help you. Pray Psalm 139 to God. Right? In the words of Psalm 139, ask God to search your heart. Ask him to test you. To know your anxious thoughts. To see if there is anything in you that offends him. Then ask him to lead you down the path of everlasting life, right? Just be ruthlessly honest before the Lord. Second, you need to uncover your motivations, like the why. Um, confession is more than just admitting sinful behavior. It's not enough to just say, God, I did wrong. You have to dig deep. Like, ask yourself, ask God, like, why do I do the things that I do? Right? Especially if this isn't your first time doing it. 
It may have become a pattern in your life. The answer is not simply that you broke a rule. The answer often is that you were looking for something else to fulfill a need other than God. For example, uh, if you lie, don't just say, God, I lied. I'm sorry for lying. Like, find out why you lied. Um, You lied because in that moment, something else was more important to you than God. Maybe someone else's approval was more important to you than the approval of God. Whatever the underlying motivations are, uh, we want to get to the root of why we're doing what we're doing. Now, I think most of us might be familiar with 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I think most of us, we know that we need to regularly get real before God and confess our sins to him. And his grace and his mercy and his loving kindness, out of all of that, he forgives us. Psalm 103, verse 12, says that when we confess our sins, he has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. And then he covers us once again with his righteousness. This is definitely good news. But we find another type of confession in James 5.16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So James talks about the power of confessing our sins not just to God, but to each other and praying for each other so that we can be healed. So confession to God brings forgiveness Confession to someone else combined with prayer brings healing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, in his book Life Together, he wrote the following. In confession, there occurs a breakthrough to the cross. The root of all sin is pride, superbia. I had to to look that word up. It means unreasonable and inordinate self-esteem, meaning you really think highly of yourself. I want to be for myself. I have a right to be by myself, a right to my hatred and my desires, my life and my death. The spirit and flesh of human beings are inflamed by pride, for it is precisely in their wickedness that human beings want to be like God. Confession in the presence of another believer is the most profound kind of humiliation. It hurts, makes one feel small. It deals a terrible blow to one's pride. To stand there before another Christian as a sinner is an almost unbearable disgrace. By confessing actual sins, 
The old self dies a painful, humiliating death before the eyes of another Christian. Because this humiliation is so difficult, we keep thinking we can avoid confessing to one another. Our eyes are so blinded that they no longer see the promise and the glory of such humiliation. So Bonhoeffer says that when we confess our sins to another believer, we are crucifying that old self that just wants to cover our sins. We're crucifying that old self that just wants to hide. We are putting to death that old, sick, sinful, corrupt self who'd rather like live with the crap in our lives, right, than experience the fullness and the freedom of God. So Bonhoeffer continues. He says this. It is nothing else but our fellowship with Jesus Christ that leads us to the disgraceful dying that comes in confession so we may truly share in his cross. The cross of Jesus Christ destroys all pride. So this is important. We can't find the cross of Jesus if we're afraid to go to that place of public humility, of death. That is the place where Jesus can be found. So it was a year, about a year after I'd given my life to Christ. Uh, I think I was 29 at the time. I was attending a large church in Illinois, and someone invited me to this retreat called Encounter God. The whole thing, the whole retreat was based on James 5.16, right? Passage I just read to you. So they would prayerfully pair you with someone of the same gender, right? Someone you didn't know. And at this retreat, uh, they taught on Christian worldview, spiritual warfare, our authority in Christ, and the power of confession. And then they would teach on a particular area of sin. And then they'd give you time to pull out your your sin inventory, and you check boxes in the areas of sin that you wanted to deal with. And in some cases, like, you'd write stuff down, like extra stuff, like names of people, like you had sinned or had sinned against you. And then they'd send you off with your prayer partner. Okay? And you'd each take turns, you'd each take turns confessing that area of sin and praying for each other. Then you come back to the main group and you hear another teaching on another area of sin. And then you go off with your prayer partner. And then again, you would each take turns confessing your sins to one another and praying for each other. Now, the guy they paired me with, it was incredible. Uh, I'd never met him before. But we just, it just so happened that we had so much in common um, in the areas of our sin life. Uh, both the sins that were committed against us 
and sins that we had committed ourselves. Like only God could have orchestrated that pairing. We realized that uh, by the end of that retreat. So the sin areas that we covered over that weekend, I, I have them, they're going to put it up on the board because I want you to see this. These are the different areas of sin that we had to go through. So freedom from false religions and the occult, freedom from unforgiveness, freedom from habitual sins and addictions, freedom from curses, so like condemning or demeaning words others have spoken over us or that we have spoken over ourselves, freedom from sexual sin, freedom from bondages created by like rejection, abandonment, abuse, self-harm, and there's a whole, whole list of those things. Release from resentment and anger. Breaking any unholy vows that we have made. Uh, and then in general, breaking any spiritual bondages created by sin. Again, either sin that's been committed against us or sin that we've committed ourselves. And you go through each of these areas, right? Big group teaching. Then you go off with your prayer partner. You confess. You pray for each other. Big group teaching. And you go off. You confess. And you pray for each other. Wash, rinse, repeat. And interspersed through the weekend... Uh, were times of prayer, like they get you into like groups of five and six people, and each person uh, in that group would 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 sit in the chair, and the rest of them would 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 pray for that person. So every person got the opportunity to be prayed for by a group of people. And then at the end of the retreat, we all circled up around a fire. We threw our sin inventories into the fire. We held hands and we sang Amazing Grace. Now, to be honest, um, I was scared to go to this retreat. I almost backed out a number of times. But after it was over, I was a changed man. I was free. And actually, by the end of that retreat, I knew without a shadow of a doubt, like that, that evening, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was being called by God into ministry. That literally is where that happened. That was 22 years ago. Um, since then, I have led many of these retreats. I always find it funny, like, when people, you know, show up, they're like deer in headlights. They're like, I don't know what to expect, you know. <laughs> and there's just fear on them. And then when they leave, there's just like this beautiful countenance on their faces. Uh, I have seen God do an amazing work in hundreds of people's lives by just applying like this one scripture, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you can be healed. 
the power of confession. I want to close with one more quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this, in confession, the breakthrough to new life occurs. Where sin is hated, admitted, and forgiven, there the break with the past is made. Old things are passed away. But where there is a break with sin, there is conversion. Confession is conversion. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Christ has made a new beginning with us. As the first disciples left all and followed when Jesus called, so in confession, the Christian gives up all and follows. Confession is discipleship. Life with Jesus Christ and his community has begun. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28, 13. In confession, the Christian begins to forsake his sins. Their dominion is broken. From now on, the Christian wins victory after victory. What happened to us in baptism is bestowed upon us anew in confession. We are delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is joyful news. Confession is the renewal of the joy of baptism. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've made it possible for us to go to you and confess our sins and be forgiven to have our sins removed as far as the east is from the west and to be cleansed so that in the words of Psalm 51, we can be whiter than snow. We thank you, Lord, that you've made it possible for us to be healed of the burden of sin by confessing and praying with another follower of Christ. Holy Spirit, right now I pray that you would bring to mind in every person hearing my voice any area that needs to be dealt with through confession. Bring your conviction, bring confession, bring your freedom, bring your righteousness, and bring your healing. I pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.